It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And welcome into the Virtual Bible Study. This is the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, October 29th, 2009. Thank you for being a part of it tonight and we look forward to your participation on the phone at 877-381-4567 or over email at questions at collegeview.com. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father is across from the table from me again tonight. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you on Thursday night for the virtual Bible study. We always look forward to it. We always have a lot of feedback from our listeners, and uh, we, we seek that. We desire that because we think it helps make our program better. And so we hope that those who are listening tonight will get on the telephone and call us or uh, uh, send us an email so that we can include your feedback and your participation in the program. If listener feedback makes our program better, tonight's program is going to be outstanding because it's based solely on listener feedback. That's right. Uh, you know, and this has been happening more often, Jacob. We've been devoting whole programs to to questions that come in. Uh, you can send us a question anytime. You don't have to send it just during the live broadcast period. And people do that. Periodically, we get questions during the week. And I usually save up several, and then we uh, seems like we've done it three or four times recently where we have a whole program just dealing with questions that people sent in. That's what we want to do tonight. I'm looking at questions that came in here on Thursday at 10 o'clock after the program, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, so lots of different times. Anytime will be great. And our questions have come from some interesting geographical locations. We have questions tonight from Tennessee, which is pretty common because we are in Tennessee, obviously. But we also have question a question from Texas, a, a question from um, California. California, and a couple of questions from the Philippines. And so that's kind of interesting. Uh, from way over on the other side of the world, we've got people listening to the virtual Bible study, and, and a, question, a couple of questions have been sent in from there, and so we're going to deal with those. And we have time to take your questions tonight as well. If that's you've right. got some that you've been thinking about or maybe something comes to mind during the program, send it in. We'll try and uh, tackle it tonight as and well. And if we don't get to it tonight, we'll, we'll put it in the mix for a future program. We can All do right. that too. Uh, remember that if you'd like to know ahead of time what our topic is going to be, you can get on our update list by sending us an email, questions at collegeview.com, put in the subject line, add me to the list. And, Jacob, tell them how to get in the chat room. I see that we're getting uh, one or two uh, in the chat room. we got several who it, – it looks like there are several people who are peering into the chat room and not participating, but – that's true. Uh, if you would like to be a part of the chat room tonight, uh, the instructions are at the bottom of your screen there. If you're watching us from Ustream.tv, you will have to create an account tonight. Again, we uh, there's uh, something, uh, some glitch with Ustream doesn't allow anonymous comments. And so you have to acknowledge, you can make up a, a pseudonym if you like, but you do have to create an account. It is free, uh, and then you can make comments in the chat room. All right, so there's a lot of ways for you to give us feedback tonight, and we're seeking that feedback. <clears throat> uh, let me uh, read the – well, maybe we should go over all three all, – all five questions that we have scheduled to talk about tonight. The first one has to do with Matthew 19.9 and the innocent party. Can the innocent party remarry? That's what I want to talk about first. Another question we'll, – we'll, we'll describe these questions a little more thoroughly. But the second question is also, also I think, has uh, – some impact on the divorce and remarriage question, Jacob, because it's a question. Uh, oh, it's, a, it's the, maybe veiled a little bit. Yeah. There are some people who are teaching that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't belong in the New Testament. They're part of the Old Testament, that Jesus was just explaining Old Testament law. Uh, and so they try to exclude the teachings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to talk about do those belong in the New Testament or the Old. We're going to talk about with uh, the the action of disciplining a disorderly member and especially can we eat with such people. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Uh, we want to talk about uh, baptism, specifically why was Jesus baptized? And then the last question is going to have to do with sort of the question of a located evangelist. Is it right to have a hired preacher, a, lo- a local, located evangelist with the church? That, that's just the, the broad general areas we want to discuss. And we'd 
seek your input on any of those questions. So uh, we hope that you'll get to us. Let's start with this first one, Jacob, on Matthew 19.9. This is from the Philippines. Uh, Emilio in the Philippines has asked, "May in Matthew 19.9, may the innocent party remarry since the statement is silent about it. Let me read Matthew 19.9 real quick and then let's comment. Matthew 19.9, Jesus is speaking. He says, I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. That's a very important verse in the uh, in the marriage, divorce, and remarriage question, for sure. All right. And so Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, uh, does tell us about an exception. Someone could be guilty of fornication and be put away. It doesn't tell us about, or it does tell about that person who's been put away for fornication. The last phrase there in the verse says, Whoso marrieth her that is put away doth commit adultery. So if they're guilty of fornication, then they're put away. They, the person who marries that person uh, commits adultery. Yeah, but if they're innocent, the, the exception clause does not, uh, is still, the, the last phrase still works there. I think the last phrase is sort of categorical. Uh, and and we have said it this way before, and I believe it is an accurate way to state it. No put away person can remarry. Clearly, and, I, and most folks agree that if you are the guilty party in uh, a divorce situation, in other words, you have been guilty of sexual immorality, and your mate puts you away for that reason, you can't remarry. Now, that's I, I got to be careful to say most people agree. There are a lot of people who don't agree with that. Most denominational people don't agree with that, and some in the churches of Christ don't agree with that, unfortunately. But this passage is very clear that if you are the guilty party and your mate puts you away because you have committed fornication, you can't remarry. But the way this verse is worded, as you said, Jacob, says that really no put-away person can remarry. And I think that is confirmed by tying in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. In Matthew 5.32, Jesus said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. So there Jesus is describing the the situation where a man might put away his wife who is not guilty, and it says he causes her to commit adultery when she remarried. So she was innocent, and he put her away. But when she remarried, she committed adultery. Luke sixteen eighteen is almost a verbatim Matthew nineteen nine with the exception removed. Luke sixteen eighteen says, Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. So again, no condition placed upon the person who has been put away. Now Matthew nineteen verse nine does then clarify the exception for the person doing the putting away. But it does not, as you said, refer to the person who has been put away. Yeah. So let's make sure we're clear on this first. If you are the put away person, in other words, if you're the, your mate has taken action to put you away or divorce you, certainly you can't remarry if you were guilty of fornication and, and you were put away for that reason. But I believe these verses clearly teach also that even an innocent put away person cannot remarry. If you have been put away by a mate, whether you were innocent or guilty, you cannot remarry. But now, what about the innocent person who does the putting away, Jacob, from Matthew 19.9? And I think that's what Emilio is asking about. Here's a man. His wife is unfaithful to him. He divorces her for that reason. He's innocent. Can he remarry? And Emilio says, and I'd have to disagree with the way he states this. He says the, state, the, the, the statement in Matthew 19.9 is silent about that. It's really not silent about that. It, the, the, the exception clause deals with that case uh, and so it, it, the, the, i don't think the verse is really silent on the matter of the innocent person who puts away a guilty spouse i believe the the verse is giving license for that person to remarry without sin if the innocent party is the put away then we do not believe they have authority to remarry if the innocent party is the one who does the putting away for the correct reason the cause of fornication then they do have the permission to remarry, according to Matthew 19, verse what, 9. Well, maybe an illustration would help. What if we were driving down the road and we came to a roadblock and it said road closed. No persons can go further on this road except those who live in, in on this highway. Well, that statement addresses the people who live on the highway. They are an exception, and they are addressed in that statement. They're allowed Nobody can go down this road except those who live on this road. 
we would understand that the exception does address those who live on that road. The past, the, the statement is not silent concerning their situation. So I, I think the verse does teach that the innocent person can remarry. Now, he, now, yeah, he may be uh, uh, referencing the fact that some some people believe this that you can put away for the cause of fornication, but you cannot remarry. Right. And uh, and then how do you explain that? Well, I, again, I think the, the the way the verse is constructed, I believe, teaches. An author uh, gives authorization or authority for a, an innocent person who puts away a guilty spouse to remarry without sin. The road, the road illustration you yeah. mentioned there. Okay. All right. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. Questions at collegeview.com. I know there have been people in the past who have held the position that any remarriage after divorce is sinful, and uh, we believe Matthew nineteen verse nine would give the. Well, we appreciate uh, Emilio's question. He's got another one here. We'll follow up within a minute, uh, and it's a good question as well. But thanks for listening in the Philippines, Emilio. We're really encouraged to know that we have listeners in in the Philippines, and we are happy that you're there uh, to, on the program tonight, and we appreciate. Your comment. We uh, have a comment from the chat room tonight. We're sorry, but our audio connection is poor. We're bowing out for tonight. We'll listen to the podcast. Well, I wonder if if any of others are having audio problems, you might send us a message. It sure sounds good in my headphones. Yeah. When you're talking, when I talk, it doesn't sound too good. But uh, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. All right. Now, let's, uh, we've got just a, a couple of minutes before our first break, and so let's introduce this follow-up question. This comes from Wade in Hampshire, Tennessee, uh, who says... Uh, we're, we're clear in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Tonight. Yeah, Jason, Jason says we're clear. Jason says it's coming Thanks, in, Chris. Jason. Thanks, Jason. Uh, Wade in Hampshire, Tennessee says, Recently I was listening to a sermon that introduced a topic that I hadn't thought about in a long time. Years ago, I was out in San Antonio, Texas, and heard a debate by a man named Dan Billingsley. I believe that he believed that the Gospels were not part of the New Testament, but were part of the Old Testament. Of course, by placing them in this category, he takes many laws away from us today that we believe are to we are to live by. How would you deal with this line of argumentation? So the the, the argument is, and, and I've heard of this man, Dan Billingsley. I don't know him uh, personally, but I have heard of him. And I believe the reason that that view is being pursued is because they specifically want to exclude the teaching of Jesus on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. They'd like to get around that or, or bypass that. And Jesus' law is very strict. You know, we could point out right there in Matthew 19, where we were talking a minute ago. Jesus, uh, Jesus said, Matthew 19:9, "Whosoever shall put away his wife, except to be for fornication, shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her that is put away, doth commit adultery." His disciples said to him. If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. And so basically the disciples said, wow, that is a hard standard. That That's a, Jesus, you've really raised the bar. You've made that a difficult thing. And Jesus acknowledged that it was. It's meant to be a strict standard. But now was that standard binding on us today? Was Jesus just reiterating what the Old Testament taught or was he teaching a law that would be bound upon us today? Well, I believe that we, we can can prove from the scriptures that the teachings of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are things which were describing the 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 doctrine of the kingdom, the the his his message to mankind that would be enforced in the kingdom. He was stating a new will, a new testament. It's kind of interesting in Matthew, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter nine. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Hmm. But notice the way that's stated. Obviously, the, the testament was in existence, but not in force until the testator died. Just as your will has to be written before your death, or else uh, it's a fraud. Right. And so Jesus expressed his will... Now, we, we, we would fully agree Jesus lived his whole life under the law of Moses. He was a Jew and a faithful one. He kept all the principles and, and, and perfectly, in fact, was able to live under the law of Moses without sin. In his whole lifetime, the law of Moses was in force. In fact, Colossians 2, verses 14 through 16 says that he nailed that law to his cross. And so he lived under it his whole time. When he died on the cross, uh, th- that that covenant... The law of Moses was abolished. So we are acknowledging that Jesus lived under that under that law, but he expressed his testament while he was alive, and it came into force 
after he died. That's the argument that the Hebrew writer is making there in Hebrews chapter 9. But obviously the testament had to exist so that it could be enforced at his death. Well, that is uh, in line with what is said about Jesus' teaching in passages like Mark, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He wasn't preaching the Old Testament law. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and that is repeated throughout the, the gospels. Exactly right. There's a, an interesting statement in Luke 16 at verse 16. It says, The law and prophets were until John, meaning John the Baptist. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. So, the, the the law and prophets were until John the Baptist, and then the gospel of the kingdom began to be preached. And so I think that's a pretty definitive statement. Um, the, the, think of some things that are in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that if we're going to exclude it, we're going to have to exclude it all, because all of those things pertain, all of those gospel accounts end at Jesus' death. So if... If things that Jesus taught while he was alive don't pertain to us today, then nothing in them, nothing in those gospel accounts pertain to us. If that being the case, then you'd have to, to throw out the Lord's Supper, wouldn't you? Jesus taught sure. in Matthew 26, verse 28. What about the new birth, born of water and spirit? Jesus taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 5. You, you have to throw that out. You can't use that. What about um, Mark 16, 15 and 16? which includes the commission to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't, we can't use that. We can't enforce that. So, uh, you know, I, I would just argue that that position that teaches that the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't pertain to us and we don't live by that law um, simply miss the mark. And how could we be disciples of Christ if we don't do anything that he said? If everything that he did and said uh, was uh, an old law that has been done away with, how could we be disciples of Christ today? We would be just sort of out here floundering around, not having any direction. Real quickly, before before we move to a break, Jacob, uh, in John chapter, John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus promised the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, in John fourteen twenty six, the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. Why? Why would it be important oh, for them? Oh, sure, yeah. Why would it be important to remember what Jesus said? If you can it, forget about that now. Yeah. I think it's a very faulty position. So to Wade's question, and I have heard of this, Dan Billingsley, and the doctrine that he's been promoting, I think it's a faulty doctrine. We, those principles taught in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John pertain to us. Jason in Pennsylvania has another passage that, that is very helpful. In Luke 6, verse 46, said, Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Uh, that's, a, that's an applicable passage here. If we're going to say that Jesus' instructions are not binding on us today, then we would have a problem calling him Lord. Exactly right. Appreciate that comment, Jason. 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. We'll take a short break and continue the discussion on the other side. Plenty of time to take your question if you have one, any Bible question or comment is fair game. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study will continue right after this. Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks us. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the virtual Bible study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Please join us here every Thursday night on the Virtual Bible Study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. Hello, my name's Jeffrey Vernon. I'm 13, and this is the Virtual Bible Study. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians 3:17. Now, back to the program. 
Welcome back to the program tonight. We're glad you're a part of it, and we do listen, look forward to you participating in the program tonight. We've got a question that we noted during the break that we'll hopefully get to uh, coming out from Kansas, I believe, tonight, and we'd like to have your question. If you have anything that you've wondered about that you've been studying in the Scriptures, maybe someone that you've talked with has asked a question that you uh, wondered about, uh, wondered the answer about, uh, why not throw it out uh, to the forum tonight, and we can get our listeners' participation from around the world and uh, hopefully uh, help you uh, get a question answered that you might have. 877-381-4567 is the number to call or send your email to questions at collegeview.com. If nothing else, send us an email and tell us where you're listening. Uh, we're always interested to know where our listeners are. And so, you know, if, if you don't have a question to add or a comment to add, just say, hey, I'm listening in such and such a place. We like to hear those kind of things, too. All right. All right, we got another follow-up question from Emilio. He started us off tonight. Now he's got a question on... What I would, I guess, would be an unrelated uh, subject. He says, what constitutes withdrawing from a disorderly member? What does disorderly walking include? Sometimes when I go to a community to hold a meeting, I'm invited to take dinner with a backslider or adulterer against whom the church has taken no action. Should Should such an invitation be accepted or rejected? Oh, there's several things. Very to conscientious about. question. We yeah, should, yeah. Uh, thank you for that. That's a that's an excellent uh, question for us to consider. Yeah, and I, I appreciate the fact that he has a tender heart and, and he wants to be sure he's doing the right thing about yeah, that. Yeah. I've known of some people in situations where they clearly should not eat with a, a brother who has been disciplined by the church. But no question about it. They no question, there, yeah. and, and yet they say, well, I, "Well, what am I supposed to do? I got you know." Uh, what what you're supposed to? I, I remember a fellow actually. He he was seen at a restaurant with a member who had been withdrawn from. The local church had disciplined that person, and he was eating with that person at a restaurant. And he said, "Well, what was I supposed to do?" That's a pretty easy answer. What you're supposed to do is not eat with that person. You're referencing First Corinthians right. five verse eleven. But now I've written unto you not to keep company of any man that is called a brother, be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one. No, not to eat. So, what's your what's your take on this, uh, Emilio's question here? Well, first of all, I think First Corinthians five is you know probably if you if you want to go to one place and get probably the the most involved discussion of this action of of disciplining an unruly member, it would be there in First Corinthians chapter five. And then if you wanted a a, a second passage that would probably uh, expound upon that second Thessalonians chapter three, uh, beginning at verse six. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Uh, so, he, you know, th- there's the instruction to do that later in the chapter. He says, verse 14, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So those are the teachings. So he asked, what does dis, uh, what constitutes withdrawing? Well, what constitutes withdrawing is when we do what these passages teach us to do. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So the church in its assembly, when they have come together, publicly identify this situation and that person who is guilty of sin and won't repent is thus identified and the, the, the congregation is instructed not to conduct social interaction with that person anymore. They withdraw themselves from this person. They withdraw their social interaction. Uh, and that's what he says. Uh, I have, uh, verse, uh, nine, I have wrote, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. So, uh, I mean, he, he's pretty clear on that. Uh, if a man who is a brother be a fornicator or covetous, a dollar or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one, no, not to eat. And so we, we withdraw our social company from such an individual. That's what constitutes withdrawing. Let me ask you a question, though, about Emilio's uh, question in particular. This is a backslider or an adulterer with, from whom the church has taken no action. Right. Let's say it's an adulterer or, uh, let's say, a fornicator. Can I, as an individual, 
eat with this brother who's called a fornicator with whom the church has taken no action. Well, Jason makes an observation in the chat room. Uh, he says, if the congregation won't do anything about that, the person that is in sin and won't repent, we should re- withdraw our social company individually. I, I would tend to agree with that. Uh, and he says earlier there, uh, uh, just the idea that the church is doing nothing is condemned by Paul here in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you, 1 Corinthians 5. So uh, and I think that Jason's observation is right. If the church hadn't done anything and you've got a brother who's in, in, in a, a open and obvious sin, then that's something wrong with the church. The whole church is in jeopardy if that's the situation. It needs to be addressed. It should not be ignored. And and I, I would agree with Jason in that I, I would have to I would have to individually do what the church as a whole should be doing. Yeah, I don't think it gives you a pass from First Corinthians eleven. That's an individual. First Corinthians five eleven. That's an individual instruction. You're not to eat with them. So if you're saying it's okay as long as the church hasn't done anything, then you're saying it is uh, acceptable if a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater to eat with them. And uh, Paul says it's not. Yeah. So I, I think now. One other thing, maybe one other thing that might be implied in Emilio's questions. Um, he says, uh, if any man that's called to be a brother be a fornicator or covetous, an idolater, a railer, a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one know not to eat. I've known some people say that, that Paul's giving specific sins. Not Not all sins would lead to this action of withdrawing only those that he specifically identified in that verse. And I disagree with that. And I would use Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, Paul said, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. Well, earlier in the epistle, he had said, chapter 2, verse 14, uh, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or epistle. So basically, he's saying, keep all the instructions we have ever given you, either by by in person or by written epistle. Keep them all. And then he says, if anybody won't do that, note them and have no company with them. So I think that this, that, that uh, a person could be disorderly about any sinful activity. If they won't correct it, if they won't repent, then they should be identified and discipline. And we're not saying that anyone is perfect and that uh, that we're standing before anyone as, as sinless individuals. But the, what is talked about here, Dad, are those uh, those habitual sins that uh, those individuals are unwilling to repent of. They're they're living in those sins, and uh, and uh, they're perfectly content with that in their life. So I would say, and I get the idea, and I don't know Emilio, but uh, it, it's implied in his statement that he's a preacher when he goes to hold meetings in these places. Sometimes he's invited to a dinner where a backslider or adulterer, but the church hasn't acted. Should the invitation be accepted or rejected, I would I would say Emilio, there's a good there's an open door opportunity for you to both teach the 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 unrepentant sinner, but also teach the church that those things should not be ignored. In other words, you you'd be if you took a, an action in that matter, then you you'd have a chance to teach lots of people what is right. Absolutely appreciate that comment. Here's Jason in Pennsylvania again. He says, if we love our brethren, we will be willing to do anything we can to lead them to repentance, even if it means we need to withdraw ourselves from them. The unfortunate thing is that we don't have close enough relationships with our brethren to the point that if we withdraw ourselves from them, it will affect them very much. Yeah, that's right. And that's why it's important to develop. You know, one of the things that I can do that's sort of an insurance policy for myself is to develop lots of close relationships in the church. And the reason I call that an insurance policy is... If then I am tempted and, and begin to fall away, those close relationships are going to be something that will serve to draw me back. And so, you know, people need to develop close relationships in the body of Christ for that very reason. All right. We got uh, an email, Jacob, from Carolyn, listening in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Thanks, Carolyn. Good to hear from Good you Good to tonight. hear from you tonight. Thanks for being out there. And we'd like to hear from you. We're open to any Bible question you might have tonight. Uh, send it in. Uh, we, we're we not going to place any limitations on how difficult it is tonight. Any question is fair game. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, we're not, we, we're, we're not answer. That's right. We might not be able to answer. But, but we could tap into the power of the Internet to get you a question from some of our listeners around the world. So join in now in the discussion. We'll take a break and get this week's bullet point. On the other side of the break, we'll continue the discussion. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. Picture this young girl taken captive in a war. An innocent victim in a dispute between powerful countries. Now, with her freedom gone, she is obliged to perform slave duties in the house of the conquering army commander. Who is this girl? She is a minor player in a well-known Bible account that centers on her slave master. And who is that slave master? Naaman is his name, and his story is found in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, as you recall, was a successful army captain, but he was also a leper. The lesson from this slave girl is found in verse 3 of 2 Kings 5. Without any hint of the hatred or animosity that could have easily filled her heart, she suggests a positive cure for her master's affliction. She said, quote, If only my master were with a prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. From this minimal information, we can classify this young girl as a person of great faith. Someone might ask why. It is because of her one simple statement. The prophet she had reference to was Elisha. How did she know he could heal leprosy? Someone suggests that maybe she had seen him do it many times before. No, in fact, he had never done it before. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 4, verse 27, quote, Many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. This girl knew that Elisha could heal him of his leprosy because she had faith in God. Faith is, according to Hebrews 11, verse 1, the evidence of things not seen. The Bible speaks of many things that we have not observed. Do you believe them anyway? There are many things that God has said, including eternal promises he has made to us. Do you trust him? Are you confident that he has the power to do all things? Judgment and your eternal destiny will be determined by your reaction to things you have not seen. How strong is your faith? Will you obey him? That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile, in South America, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program, too. Gracias. Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The virtual Bible study. Take it away, guys. And welcome back to the program. We are broadcasting around the world tonight. And you, if you are out there around the world tonight, let us know where you are. We'd like to hear from you on the program. But we would specifically like your question as we take various questions and uh, uh, potpourri, if you will, of various Bible topics and questions tonight. Any Bible question or comment is fair game. So join in on the discussion tonight. You know, sometimes we handcuff our uh, audience, Dad, and we, we have a certain topic out there, and we want our discussion to be focused around that topic. But tonight, the handcuffs come off, and any question or comment is fair game. So uh, you don't have to necessarily have any comments about the question we're talking about right now. You can send in your yeah, another, question, another question, steer us in a different direction yeah. for the upcoming question. Jump in that chat room. We've got a little more activity going on. we got somebody new, I think. Somebody has created an account. We have somebody in there that I don't recognize, Jacob. Avid Explorer 1. I don't think we've seen that, that chatter before. We're glad that you're out there. Yeah, glad you're out there. Uh, uh, um, this, this next question comes to us from California, Fresno, California. Justin is a listener there. He says, hello, Greg and Jacob. I love listening to the virtual Bible study, so keep up the good work. I'm a member of the Church of God out of Anderson, Indiana, but attending in Central California. I think your view on baptism is exactly right. God commanded it. I believe it. That settled it. I do have one question. Why was Jesus baptized? Please share your thoughts and scripture to support this. Thanks. Well, Justin, thanks for listening in California. We're very pleased to know that you're out there and uh, hope you'll continue to listen and participate with us in the virtual Bible study every Thursday night. Interesting question, Jacob. I've, uh, it's, it's been posed to me several times over many years. Why did Jesus have to be? We, we are baptized, Acts 2.38, for the remission of sins, right? That's what that's what we do. We're baptized to have our sins washed away, Acts 22, verse 16. But Jesus didn't have any sins. You know, it's interesting because John's baptism was also for repentance and remission of sins. In uh, Mark 1, verse 4, John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So there was, again, an element of that forgiveness in John's baptism. 
So the answer may not be clear, but I think Matthew chapter 3, verse 15 does give us an indication why. Jesus told uh, John when John didn't want to be baptized, didn't want to baptize Jesus, Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. So that's the key. When Jesus it said Jesus came to, from Galilee to Jordan and to John to be baptized him, but John forbade him, saying, "I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me?" Which I think, from John's point of view, I could fully understand that reaction. John knew the identity of Jesus; he knew him to be the very Son of God, and so you know uh, his reaction. I think is very understandable. What you want me to baptize? You want me to baptize you? I that you know you need to be baptized in me and but jesus expression there in verse 15 suffer it to be so now for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness he did it that's why jesus was baptized was to fulfill all righteousness he didn't do it because he needed his sins forgiven because he had no sins but he needed to fulfill all righteousness righteousness is, is that's it's it's what's right and so if we were going to say it we would probably say he did it because it was the right thing to do. It was what people should be doing then, and he yeah. wanted to do what, uh, what what was the thing to that, do. That's right. In fact, it, it, this baptism of John was from God, and those who rejected it were rejecting God. In Luke chapter 7, beginning verse 29, all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves being not baptized of John. So the, the, the Pharisees and lawyers, it says they were rejecting the counsel of God. This was what God was instructing. John was an inspired teacher sent from God with a mission and a purpose and a message. And it was right. It was the right thing to do what John was commanding. And certainly Jesus was the exception to the rule. No one else could, was in the same uh, category as Jesus as uh, not uh, having sins that needed to be forgiven. And so uh, Jesus uh, was the exception to the rule. But as you said, it was the command of God uh, that this needed to be done. And so Jesus wanted to fulfill that command. Looks like Brad's in Athens, Alabama, is stepping up to our challenge to give us more questions. And more maybe questions. trying to stump us. I don't yeah, know. I think he's yeah. still working on getting his question in there. Uh, we'd like to hear from you on the program tonight as well. Send us an email or give us a phone call. Yeah, we, it, it, we don't really want to play stump the, the, the preacher, but we will if, if it comes to that. We, and we're not, and we're not tempted, Jacob, to say if we don't know the answer to something, we're not tempted to say, "Hey, I don't know the answer to that question." And you may not have to look too far to find something we, we don't know the answer to, so you may not have to try too hard. Um, Okay, hey, here's a follow-up from our new chatter in the chat room. For the sake of family unity, can one tend to forget those that have been withdrawn from? Now, uh, Avid, if you're still listening out there, give us a little more explanation. In other words, can you for, can you forget about them being withdrawn from? Is it okay? Uh, here's another, What is the best way for those who will be at the holiday gatherings with those who have been withdrawn from from many years ago? I'm speaking of being with family members who are walking disorderly. And uh, so he says, for the sake of family unity, can uh, one can tend to forget that those uh, those that have been withdrawn from. Okay, so over oh, time, okay. you just forget that uh, Aunt uh, Sally has been withdrawn from, and I don't need to be associated with her. Maybe I just I just maybe conveniently forget that, so that we don't have to deal with the question of what do we do. Yeah, that is a very challenging thing when it is in families, when it's family members. You know, it's 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 a difficult enough thing. When any member of the church is withdrawn from, and we have to take disciplinary action. This goes back to our previous question, by the way, uh, about withdrawing. So I, I think we've wrapped up the question about why was Jesus baptized. I hope we've get, given uh, uh, Justin a, a think, good I think answer. That's all we, we've given the only answer. That's all we know to say. All about, the only information yeah. we got. But back, uh, just th- this. This is sort of backing up to that question about withdrawing. It's always difficult when we have to withdraw from someone who's who is disorderly or not obedient to God. That's a difficult situation. It's it's mu- multiplied in difficulty when that person is a, a relative of our own, um, and uh, I, I I mean it's a challenging question, and I think some judgment has to be employed. There 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 is a difference between someone who is in my immediate family who's a Christian. My relationship with them is twofold. With, with another Christian, my relationship is just within the body of Christ. But with a person who's a Christian who's also my near relative, we have a twofold relationship, a, 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 a relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ, but also a relationship as 
family members. And so I think that you have to factor that in. For instance, what if my wife was disciplined by the local church? In other words, my my wife and I are both Christians, and my wife becomes unfaithful. Well, I can't just completely stop associating with her because to do so would would mean that I would be violating other instructions that I have as a husband. I have I have certain duties as a husband to my wife, and I couldn't just completely separate myself from all interaction with her. It'd be a sin to do so. That's the easy one. If it's a husband and wife, you you can show you can show in that relationship very easily that there, that some interaction would still be mandated, necessary, because it'd be sinful not to fulfill those responsibilities. Maybe, That's the easy one. Maybe but, you had parents who had been become unfaithful. Again, you have uh, obligations to your parents regardless of their faithfulness. Or if you had a child that is still under your, for instance, let's say you had an adolescent child still under your guidance at home and they had been disciplined by the church, you'd still have parenting responsibilities to that child. But then the question becomes, what what happens when those relationships are more removed? It, it, it's real easy, I think, when you talk about a husband and wife to see clearly that there, there's an additional relationship there to factor in. It's pretty easy with parents, children. What happens when it get, gets beyond that? that? In other words, that's the nearest circle of family influence. What if it gets broader than that? Well, then that, that's why I say we have to leave some room for individual judgment in the matter. And uh, I, I think to me it becomes pretty obvious uh, as, as it gets much beyond that circle. It becomes real obvious. You to don't me. have obligations to right. Uncle John or Aunt Sally. Yeah. And and I, I know what I I know what I would want to do in those situations, but I'm not sure how, that I can say everyone must accept my judgment in such matters. But if we really care about this person, let's say it is Aunt Sally, and if you really care about Aunt Sally, then to to honor the the disciplinary action of the church in regards to her would be the best thing you could do for her because that'd be the most that 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 would be hopefully awaking her to her serious spiritual condition, maybe bring her back. Aunt Sally it lives in Arizona. I'm only going to see her one time a year at the family gathering at Thanksgiving time, and that one time a year when I'd have the opportunity to influence Aunt Sally to consider her uh, spiritual condition, I'm going to pass on that opportunity, eat with her like everything's okay, and then I won't see her again for another year. Yeah. Is that the best way to take care of that opportunity? doesn't seem so. All right. All right. Thanks for that follow-up, Abbott. That's a good question. All right. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. How about we get into Brad's question before the break? All right. Uh, Brad's got a question coming to us by, uh, uh, what is that? I guess you'd call that instant messaging on Google. Yes, yes. On Gmail. Uh, he says, since you're soliciting questions, uh, he says, we know that the complete local church has elders and deacons, but sometimes there are churches that have men qualified to be deacons, but no men qualified to be elders. My question, can a church have deacons without elders? I've heard that question before, too, and I think it's I think it's uh, kind of a sticky one. We know that the qualifications of elders and deacons are in First Timothy chapter 3. Beginning at verse 1, it talks about elders. And then beginning in verse 8, it talks about deacons and their qualifications are spelled out there. I think it is, I think, I think it would be a pretty easy thing to conceive of a church that has men who meet the qualifications of deacons, which are not quite as stringent as the qualifications for those who must be, uh, have to be elders. So what if you have that situation existing? Um, I guess I'm just going to state my judgment on that. It seems to me that it would be a, a difficult thing to have men in that position because I think they would almost begin to be regarded as de facto elders if they had been appointed to that special function. And uh, it seems to me that deacons should be under the oversight of elders in the special work and service that they provide to the congregation. So, uh, and again, I don't know where I would go in the scriptures to justify that position. So that's why I'm just saying that's probably an opinion and a judgment more so than a, than a a hard and fast absolute. But that, that would be my judgment in that. Uh, To, uh, again, there's just really no instruction about uh, about that one way or the other. There's no, there's no, no indication that, uh, one is required and 
for the other to exist. But I think other it would be I think it would be other. almost unavoidable that that if you had that situation, the deacons would begin to assume authority that they shouldn't assume if they're if they are specially recognized and appointed for special duty and service in the church. Who's who's going to oversee that? And what would be the what would be the the checks and balances in that kind of a situation? I, I think it would be questionable. At least in my judgment, it would be a, a somewhat unmanageable situation. All right, that's the best we can do on that, Brad. If you got some insight, or if others do, uh, by all means, send yeah, it in. Brad probably has some uh, an opinion on that as well. We'd like to hear that as well. We're going to take a break, and then we go to the top of the hour. We have one more question. We have two more questions to go. But we have time to take yours as well. So if you've not submitted your question yet, do so during the break. We'll continue right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Hello, everyone. I'm Monty, a member of the College View Church of Christ. So if you've been hearing all about the College View Church of Christ on the virtual Bible study and are interested in finding out more about the church, but you live hundreds of miles away from Columbia, Tennessee, and can't come and visit with the congregation to find out more, there's no reason to fear. After all, we live in the 21st century. Here's what you can do to find out more about the College View Church of Christ. First, why don't you check out our website while you're listening to the virtual Bible study? You'll find important information about the church there, including bulletin articles there on various subjects and can even listen to sermons that have been presented at the College View Church in the past. Secondly, if you have questions about the church or about any Bible teaching, why don't you send an email to us and let us know how we can help. Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. That address, once again, is questions at collegeview.com. We can even have a personal Bible study with you over email if you desire. And finally, if you would rather talk with someone in person, give us a call at 931-381-4567. That's 931-381-4567. You can call this number anytime. If you don't get an answer, leave a message and we'll call you back as soon as we can. We're glad you're listening to the virtual Bible study and hope to hear from you soon. My name is Roger Toomes and me and my wife love to listen to the virtual Bible study on Thursday nights. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. The Virtual Bible Study continues. Welcome back to the Virtual Bible Study tonight as we take various listener questions on the program tonight. So we'd like to hear from you at 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Any question or comment is fair game, so join in on the discussion as we have the final 15, 12 to 15 minutes of the program tonight to take your question. Real quickly, we've got a follow-up from Brad. We challenged him if he had any thoughts on that question that he asked, and he said, no, he, he, he doesn't have any. He says, my judgment's like yours. He says, in, if in the situation in Acts 6 can be a guide at all, the seven chosen to wait tables were delegated that task by the apostles, who would do the delegating to, to deacons if there were no elders. And so I think Brad tends to agree with our our thoughts on that as well. Thanks, Brad. Okay. Uh, the next question comes to us from Texas tonight. And, uh, yeah, an I've, got, I've got a message from Jerry. Jerry sent in a question. Jerry, we got your question. Uh, we're going to try to deal with it here in a minute. Jerry's wondering if he, his email got through. Okay, yeah, Jerry. Jerry, we got that. We're going to go to this one from Monty. He says he's in the panhandle of Texas. A kind of a longer question. Um he says, um, one of the greatest problems in the churches of Christ today and the single biggest source of division and conflict is over the hiring and firing of preachers. This is especially problematic in smaller congregations where preachers regularly move on to bigger salaries, bigger parsonages, bigger clothing allowances and car allowances. I can't blame someone for trying to earn a better living for his family, but these smaller churches end up getting the short end of the stick. And what we end up with is a type of corporate ladder. I do not see this practice in Scripture. What I see in Scripture is ideally a plurality of volunteer teachers in every congregation who were comprised of primarily the elders. Of course, there were men supported by the early church, but these men were evangelists who ordained elders and deacons in various locations and helped congregations in need. Um, the result of the current practice that we now have, many severe problems confronting the church. Number one, preachers who are trained in liberal colleges where doctrine is not taught. Qualified men are not encouraged to begin speaking. No plurality of teachers. Elders who cannot teach and are therefore completely dependent upon a preacher. Large churches having plenty of preachers, smaller ones having none. No or little help where it is most needed. 
preachers occupying the role of sole authority or elder in smaller congregations and constant backbiting and conflict over the hiring and firing of preachers. In the small congregation I attend, approximately 100 people, we have 11 men who preach, and we are constantly looking to train more. If someone gets tired of listening to me, they only have to hear me one Sunday a month, etc. The result is a diversity of teaching and a diversity of approaches to teaching. It also gives members ownership and a sense of belonging that is sorely lacking in many congregations today. He says, in conclusion, let me say that if we are truly focusing on restoring the New Testament church, I do not see the scriptural authority to hire one man to do all of our congregational preaching for us. I see no example of it or reference to it anywhere in the pages of Scripture. As a matter of fact, I see just the opposite cited in both examples and commands. He says, uh, thanks for your time. I'm anxious to hear your response. Uh, as as Monty's uh, email went on there, Jacob, it seemed to me he got a little stronger to the final conclusion where he's, I, I take it that he's he's of the position that it's not right to have a located preacher, at least a located preacher in a congregation that, that is fully organized with elders and deacons. Now, I don't know, and I don't want to put words in Monty's mouth. Monty, if, you, if you're listening, you might send some clarification on that. But certainly that is a, that is a view that has been, that been held by some brethren in the past, that all of the preachers that we read about in the New Testament were preachers who went around as evangelists establishing new congregations and working with them until such time that they were mature enough to have elders and deacons appointed, and then those evangelists moved on. That that view uh, ha, even has a, a title. Uh, it's called evangelistic oversight, that the evangelist is is there for the overseeing of that church in its infancy, but when it's reached maturity, then it's not right to have a, a, a located evangelist, and the evangelist should go on to other fields of endeavor. I'm not saying that's what Monty is believing, but it seems like maybe that's what he's leading to. Which would be a, uh, which would be a problem in and of itself. Evangelistic oversight. We don't see any uh, any indication that the evangelist has any oversight right. in, the, in the New Testament. Uh, first of all, I guess uh, in responding to what he's written, I, I would acknowledge the abuses that he has identified. I think it is bad if if we we don't have a plurality of teachers. I think it is bad if we have elders who can't teach and are they're fully de- therefore uh, fully dependent upon the preacher. Uh, I think it is bad if small churches can't find someone to work with them and large churches have lots of people wanting to work with them. All of the kind of abuses that uh, that he mentions. Uh, also, he mentions that we need to be developing preachers. I think that's a, I think that's very important. I, here, College View, we see that as a priority. And just within the last year, we've sent off two uh, men to go and preach the gospel, which we think is a good thing. And we hate to lose them in the local church, but it's a good thing when, uh, that they go and, and uh, preach the gospel uh, when and where they can. Uh, we have others in this local church who go out by appointment uh, uh, to, to small congregations to help them. So we are also sensitive to the abuses that Monty mentions here. One thing that I note, though, from his uh, from his problems that he mentions is these all these uh, teaching and preaching opportunities that he mentions. They seem to be focused on the assembly, as if that's the only place that we can develop teachers, and the only place that an elder can teach is if they do it in an assembly. And that certainly is not the case. It wasn't the case in the first century, and it shouldn't be the case today. We need to be teaching in the community and in our families and outside of the assembly. Uh, and so that would answer some of his uh, some of his objections. Yeah. Uh, now I don't know, and I'm not sure from what Monty has written how he would feel about this. But I, uh, Paul definitely teaches that it's right for those who preach the gospel to live of the gospel. First Corinthians nine verse fourteen. And so it's certainly right for men to be employed uh, in that endeavor to be supported financially in that work is definitely scriptural. It is right and proper. Furthermore, to the question of can you have a, a located preacher in a in a church that is fully organized with elders and deacons, I would argue from the case of Ephesus that Paul did that. Um, in Acts chapter 19, at verse 10, well, actually before that, at verse 8, it mentions that he was boldly proclaiming the gospel for three months and and then he, uh, an arrangement was set up in the school of one Tyrannus and this continued for the space of two years so Paul was in Ephesus for two plus years on the probably more on the order of like three years Paul was in Ephesus the church at Ephesus according to chapter 20 was a church that had elders uh, 
So I, I would use that example of a case where the Apostle Paul himself, who certainly was an evangelist who went around starting churches and working with, with churches in their infancy, even one who had appointed elders uh, in some of those churches where he had been working, uh, he was a part of that process. But it seems like in Ephesus that he was located there for a period of upwards of three years. Yeah, verse 31 of Acts 20 says he was there for three years. Yeah. Uh, remember uh, that by the space of three years, I ceased not to warn right. everyone nine day with tears. Right, exactly right. So uh, interesting question from Monty. I, I, again, I'm sympathetic to a lot of the abuses and problems that he mentions. I'm certainly sympathetic that churches to the, to the point that churches need to be developing preachers and teachers that needs to be a high priority. Nor are you saying that a church must have a located preacher no. in order to be scriptural. Right. But you're saying that uh, we don't find uh, any teaching in the New Testament that would condemn such a practice exactly. or, uh, or, man, or necessitate that there not be a, lo- a, a local preacher. Real quickly, let's get to the question that Jerry sent in. Jerry uh, uh, has asked us to comment on 1 Corinthians 11.22. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? Uh, I praise you not. So uh, uh, he wants us, does this apply? His question is, does this apply to churches today? Well, I think there's a principle in 1 Corinthians 11 that does apply to us. Certainly the church at Corinth was guilty of a lot of abuses, uh, and really the whole epistle talks about various problems in the church at Corinth. They had lots of issues, but uh, here, and one of their issues was they weren't even observing the Lord's Supper properly. And and they had made it into a common meal, uh, and, and even in that they had rudely and uh, disrespectfully treated one another in the partaking of that common meal. And so um, he says... Uh, in First Corinthians 11, verse 20, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying it should be, but it's not. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. And so he deals with that, and he gives specific instruction, as I think most of our listeners will remember, about how the Lord's Supper should be observed. But at the end of the chapter, he says, if any man hunger... Let him eat at home, that you come not together into condemnation. The rest will I set in order when I come. And so his instruction was there, there, there are two realms here. One is the realm of things we should do when we come together, and the other is the realm of things that we should do in our own homes as private individuals, not as the corporate church functioning together. And he says, don't come together for the purposes of, of these common meals. Now, Obviously, the church at Corinth had problems, and so the question that has been asked is, well, for them, they shouldn't be coming together for common meals because they couldn't, they couldn't do it without all kind of con- contention. What if we agreed to behave ourselves, you know, and, and we treat each other kindly and respectfully? Can we come together for common meals as a can the church support uh, support and sponsor common meals if we behave ourselves? Well, uh, our friend Wade in Hampshire, Tennessee, I thought had a good example on that. He said sometimes his, if, if he lets his kids go into the family room with food, they always make a mess. And so he has made a rule. There's no eating in the family room. And and so they well, can we eat in the family room if we don't make a mess? And his answer is no. The rule is you can't eat in the family room. It doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter. Mess or no mess, you can't do it. And that's the, that's the way I understand Paul's statement here concerning this is not the realm of the, of the work of the church to be involved in such thing. That's the realm of the home. Keep it there. Yeah, in first Corinthians, or first Corinthians 11 verse 34, the, uh, I see again the solution to this problem wasn't just make sure that you behave yourself in the meals, make sure everybody has enough, wait for everyone. In these common meals, that wasn't the solution. Verse 34 of 1 Corinthians 11, And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together into condemnation. The rest will I set in order when I come. His, the, the, the solution to this problem is you don't eat uh, as a, as a, as a uh, function of the work of the church in the assembly. Uh, these things are forbidden. and uh, you, You're to eat at home as a function of the family and individual. All right. Looks like we're just about out of time, Jake. We got a lot of a lot of chatting going in the chat, in the chat room. Not going to be able to cover all that, but we appreciate everybody who's been in there sharing thoughts in the chat room tonight. All right. Appreciate everyone for their comments tonight. Good uh, discussion, Dad, on 
listeners' questions. We love to get those questions. Yeah, keep them coming. If you if you are in your in your own private study of the Bible, if you have some question that comes up, send us an email at any time, and we'll put it in the mix for a future. Program. Maybe you think you knew the answer to the question you were asked by someone, but you think it's an interesting question that others would benefit from hearing uh, discussed. Send that in as well. You don't have to. It doesn't have to be a question that you don't have an answer to. Just right. send if, it in. if someone posed an interesting argument to you, and you even you know, you, you dealt with it, but it's an interesting question, an interesting thing for all to to discuss, send it to us. We'll be glad to hear from you. All right. Thank you for your time tonight, Dad. Thanks, Jacob. We appreciate you being a part of the program tonight and hope you'll make plans to be a part of the program this time next week. And in the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study his inspired word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.